I always go by where the music is, you know? And that the music was the Minutemen and Black Flag and the Meat Puppets, and that was the cool thing. And that was what attracted to me to Hollywood in 77. We're going underground to a place you've only heard about. Once through that door, we'll have left Los Angeles and entered the world of punk. Punk rock music and the punk rock culture play a significant role in California Roadkill. The characters Jimmy, Rich, and Donnie all used to be in a punk band called The In-Between. Can you give listeners a, a more fleshed out synopsis of California Roadkill? I view it as a meditation on art, on spirituality, on California, you know, specifically what's happened out here in the last, you know, 10 years. It's, um, you know, I've tried to leave California multiple times, uh, not recently, but it's sort of in my blood. It has like long tentacles, you know. I don't think I've ever read a novel that treats homelessness, mental illness, and addiction as starkly and honestly and in such an unprejudiced manner as California Roadkill. I mean, starry-eyed film and music fans like me think of L.A. as a sort of mecca, a pop culture paradise, and you don't waste any time disabusing us of that fantasy. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Rock is Lit! Season 3! Hey there, Lit listeners. Welcome to Season 3 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a recent finalist in the PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of Art and Culture Podcast. Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating, and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. In this episode of Rock is Lit, we dive into the visceral and tumultuous world of author Gen X Core's debut novel, California Roadkill. Explore the harrowing journey of three societal outliers as they navigate the shadows of violence, homelessness, and the haunting residue of addiction. From the gritty streets of Los Angeles to the soothing breezes of coastal California, the novel is an odyssey of self-discovery set against the backdrop of the Golden State. Gen X Core and I will delve into the multifaceted layers of the narrative, touching on the struggles of an adjunct teacher whose face bears the scars of a student's rebellion against a bad grade, and two of his former punk rock bandmates, one of whom is battling addiction and destitution, the other of whom thinks he's found the cure to craving and compulsion. The intertwining of punk rock music and culture amplifies the story's intensity, offering a powerful soundtrack that resonates with the characters' experiences and the broader societal commentary within the novel. I'm excited to welcome Gen X Core to the podcast.
I was doing some, trying to do some online research and I couldn't find any other interviews. And it occurred to me, I wonder if this is his first interview. Is that yeah, the case? That is the case. I am honored. I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> I just loved the way we met and how that all went down. So that was cool. Well, let's recap that. See, back in April, I was at Pleasant Gaiman's house in Hollywood, and she was reading my tarot cards. And you came along. I think you were dropping off a book. It might have been this novel. Correct. And she introduced us. How long have you known Pleasant? God, you know, loosely for probably 20 plus years, but she was a lot closer with some friends of mine, you know, kind of that first wave LA punk scene. and. I was friends with a lot of those people, but I was not of that. I'm I'm a bit younger than that. So um, I've always admired her. I mean, she wrote in the LA Weekly and, you know, she was kind of it girl for Hollywood for a long time, talented writer, musician. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. That's so cool that that's how we met. I know. Yeah. (laughs) So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your name. What's the story behind that pseudonym? It it was kind of born out of the novel. I think it speaks to the novel a little bit, but more so my basic thesis is that the individual is dead. And the idea of a collective, and I view Gen X core as just like I'm part of a collective. And it's not just Gen X. I mean, it's just like any generation, but mine happens to be X. But I feel like, you know, the idea of me, me, me is just kind of, it's not really what's needed. And then I'll just follow that up with, I've been in love with the idea of Ringo Starr and Sid Vicious since I was, (laughs) you know, a child. So like, fuck yeah, you know, all right, that's what's up. Now, do you want to tell us your real name, or should we just keep that under wraps? It's Corey, but like all my friends call me Cor. Okay, that was going to be my other question. What, yeah. what do people call you? Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you're from Southern California, but where did you grow up specifically? Well, we moved a lot. Uh, I moved probably once a year, every year for the first, I don't know, 17, 18 years of my life. Probably even longer than that, quite frankly. But primarily Orange County, Los Angeles. And you attended California State University at Long Beach? I did, yes. In my 40s. I went back to school. I'm oh, a, cool. I'm a high school dropout. So that's how that went down. It sounds like you might have that in common with the character Jimmy in the book. Because he spends a lot of money and gets, a, gets his GED. So I'm assuming he dropped out. Gets his GED and then his bachelor's and his master's and... And then gets the PhD. To be fair, like with Jimmy, he does that a lot younger than me. He does that like in his 20s. And so he's mm-hmm. been an adjunct professor for some time. So we're, we're a little bit different like that. And he's actually been doing adjunct professor for a long time. So for me, I, that wasn't really my experience. I taught a couple classes as a, a TA, getting my master's degree. I'm also wondering if you have this in common with Jimmy. He has a Serbian heritage. Is that something that is biographical? Yeah. My mom's Serbian. My grandfather on my mom's side, Serbian, he was uh, murdered before I was born. So we really... Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it's pretty heavy. So my mom, you know, she was like, I don't know, 15 or 16 when, when that went down. And Oh, my God. Yeah. And so we didn't get a lot of that culture. We did go to some these Serbian events that would happen like at Christmas and when we were kids and I, you know, I was just like the lone towhead in the, in the house, you know, everyone's just <laughs> like, you know, and they're dancing and doing, and I'm a California kid. I'm just like, what the fuck's going on here? Yeah. But the older I got, the more interested I had to, I kind of wanted to just like recreate if I could, you know, like a different experience uh, through Jimmy. Right. In the intro, I gave a little synopsis of the story. Can you give listeners a a more fleshed out synopsis of California Roadkill? I view it as a meditation on art, on spirituality, on California, you know, specifically what's happened out here in the last 10 years. You know, I've tried to leave California multiple times, uh, not recently, 
but it's sort of in my blood as has like long tentacles you know i think i was at a reading the other night and iris berry was saying something about that like about hollywood how hollywood has long tentacles and it does It's like when you drive down the street and and you've grown up in this area and you see the degradation. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I was there in April, as I said earlier, and it was a shock. The homeless population is plentiful. And in virtually every area of L.A. that I was in, it clearly is a huge problem. And you're saying that's really been in the last 10 years that it's gotten to this extent. Yeah. And that also speaks to my the nom de plume, which. Like I started noticing it after the financial crash. I mean, I just start seeing people that are like, I could have gone to high school with that guy. I could have been in a backyard party. He could have been to some of my shows, or I could have been to some of their shows. It just was obvious that it was people were disappearing. Well, there's the idea in the book that we're all the same, sort of what you're just talking about, that nobody's better than anybody else and and nobody is saved in a literal and sort of religious sense. It just pervades the novel. So I guess that accounts for the subtitle, which is A Kiss Away from the Stone song Give Me Shelter, which is, of course, an appropriate song to be associated with this novel since there is such a homeless problem in the book. Yeah, I mean, I... I could have called it Gimme Shelter, but it was just too obvious. Corey, your writing's been compared to Charles Bukowski, Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, and Hunter S. Thompson. James Remar, who is an actor in such films and TV shows as Oppenheimer, The Warriors, and Dexter, gave the novel the following blurb, quote, Poignant and beautiful, California Roadkill picks up where Bukowski left off in an homage slash condemnation to the City of Angels. It's a badass read about some very broken people and their oddly dignified dreams, end quote. Who would you say are your literary influences? That's interesting because those writers I've been exposed to, but I am not versed in. I have read a lot. I mean, I have a a master's in English, so it's a wide palette. But the primary influences probably stylistically would be Hubert Selby just for like the music and like the cadence, the way he would go about, you know, there was a musicality in his language. I, I was very influenced by that. And then Ralph Ellison for Invisible Man, like that's just the greatest novel ever, I think. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say that, but it's a great novel, you know. Yeah. Joan Didion. They're little Easter eggs for us literary nerds. Yeah, that's right. Play it as it lays is mentioned. And there's a bunch of other stuff from Whitman to I forget who else. But there there are lots of little mentions like that. So you can kind of tell, oh, this is who he digs. This is what he's been reading. That's right. And Sexton, a bunch of them. Yeah. Well, how do you know James Remar? I met him through Selby, actually. Um, I was, yeah, I was really close with Selby. Uh, Ironically, we never really talked too much about writing, per se, like the nuts and bolts of writing. I was doing music then. And so he, I went to a bunch of his stuff. We went and saw like Rollins spoken word. We went to some Van Gogh exhibit. Like he was a great hang. We talked a lot about artistry. Mm -hmm. But we didn't talk a lot about craft. And I wasn't really writing. I was writing clearly a lot of poetry and music. And and that was really my focus. But I met Remar through Cubby. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of celebrity associations, I'm dying to know in the context of that photo you posted on social media of Slim Jim Phantom of the Stray Cats holding a copy of your novel. <laughs> yeah, that was rad. He and I have a lot of mutual friends, but I just have never really had a chance to talk to him. And I've just 
admired him from afar. In LA, it's, I don't know, I always play it less is more. Like, I don't go up to people very much at all. Okay, you're not gushy. No, I'm not. I should be, but I'm, I'm not, because I am inside, you know, like, and my heart's gushing. So I went to that reading, and I was telling my brother about because it came up on, like, a, a social media feed or something. And I'm like, oh, this sounds cool, because my brother, who did the cover design for the novel. Oh, wow. Okay. He's younger than me, but he was definitely the first stray cat in the neighborhood. Like, he had it all. Like, he was cool as fuck, you know? And I was <laughs> just like, dude, I'm going. And, and I'm, you know, and I, I had gotten him a Slim's. I think he did like a biography or something. And I got my brother that for his birthday or for Christmas or something a few years back. So I took the book and I'm like, I'm going. And then I just did. I just fanboyed it. And I said, dude, and I just said it like that. You know what I mean? I just came straight. I came, came straight. I didn't have any literary words. I had no, I just, my brother's been a fan of yours and all like that. And he just was totally cool. And he's like, yeah. And I go, if I could take this picture, if I, you know, this is my novel. So what I'm doing, he was friendly, I think, with Cubby as well, at least indirectly, because Cubby had like a lot of musical friends, et cetera. So that is so cool. And I've loved the Stray Cats since I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. So yeah. I saw that and went, all right. And I totally appreciate that you did fanboy it. You know, sometimes it has to be done. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Black and orange stray cats sitting on a fence. Ain't got enough dough to pay the rent. I'm flat broke, but I don't care. I shot right by with my tail in the air. Stray cats, John, I'm a. This is Gen X Core, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You mentioned a little while ago that you write music, you play music. What do you play and how long have you been doing that? So here's the thing, like with music, I was like a real late bloomer. Like I didn't start until my 20s. Um, My childhood was just kind of, you know, strange and weird and a lot of, you know, like alcoholism. I just, I've been sober for a very, very long time now. But when I drink, I don't, I don't create, I don't do anything, the drink. So I got started late. And, you know, started doing a bunch of bands in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, kind of got it to a certain distance, but didn't bring it all the way home, so to speak. Were you playing guitar? Oh, no. Sorry. Vocalist. Yeah. And I I do play guitar, just mostly to compose. Punk rock music and the punk rock culture play a significant role in California roadkill. 
The characters Jimmy, Rich, and Donnie all used to be in a punk band called The In-Between. And Donnie is playing a pickup gig with a band called The Nucking Futs, and, which is great, at the Punk's Not Dead Fest in the present time. So before we talk about the role punk plays in the novel, would you mind reading the short chapter, Future Death One? Sure. Future Death, MacArthur Park, Punk's Not Dead Fest 101. That's what they called it. Multiple stages, dozens of bands, punk bands old and new. With a nod to the bazaar, a place of prices, there were no tickets sold. The event was free, the turnout strong. Near the artist's entrance, covering the old pigeon-shit-stained statue of Prometheus, stood a dilapidated faux cake with green icing. Across its layers in capital letters and red spray paint, Jimmy Webb is dead. Jimmy Webb, Lord. Mr. MacArthur Park himself. All that striving. All those great songs he wrote for others that no one wanted to hear him sing. And not that he didn't try, he did. Just pushed it too far got a little too close to the light. Thought he was bringing the fire only to have given it to someone else. Not even a solo record with Sir George Martin producing could make it happen. Acceptance is a motherfucker. The festival crowd was filled with hangers-on, overheated old-timers, bros with bellies and beards, black t-shirts and band names bearing identity. I was there or more punk than you. There were women, too, lots of them, in wife beaters, enhanced and now hardened breasts, angular faces bearing the pox of punk rock, of being someone's old lady, and worse, being proud of it. All of them, men and women, poorly drawn, hep-C-laden tattoos. Pretty far from straight edge now, huh, Lord? If Ginsburg's generation were looking for an angry fix, then my generation found it, and we'd been tapping that vein well past the point of abscess. We were in need of amputation. There were kids, too, more than I would have thought this far down the line. It was just like Donnie said, young ones, gutter punks, cholo punks, black punks, brown punks, queer punks, trans punks, whatever punks, homeless cretins of the earth, abused and alcoholic, dirty and drug addicted, runaways, scarified squatters, too poor for tattoos, cheap metal from China shoved into their skin, faces covered in days, weeks, months-old Sharpie ink, black scrolls of faded literature written onto their bodies, everything Donnie and I had once been and more, in droves, a factory, a rebirthing of those who came before, hardcore, only different, dead, no whiff of PMA, a positive mental attitude anywhere. I felt sick with a strange sense of belonging. They lived inside of me still. Does NPR report on them? The Atlantic? The Times? No. No political currency. No clickbait or fake news can stimulate their dollar. They have no dollar. They have zero concerns of race or identity or sexual preference politics. To them, everything goes. Do they walk? I'll fuck it. Do they talk? I'll let them fuck me. Literal or otherwise. They don't attend protests or chat rooms or discuss inequality from the comforts of an education, a roof over their head, a belly full of food. They know things are unequal. They were born into this. They are the children of mass shootings and financial bubbles, tents and day motels, trailer parks and prescription pills, opiates and meth, fast food, fast politics. Fast everything. 
They watch their parents wither and beg. They identify with survival and with street and with fuck you and with no thing and with, most important, punk rock. It frees them and it binds them, just as it always has. They are the future and they are the past. They live at our feet, on our sidewalks, in our gutters and alleyways and riverbeds, our manicured lawns. There is a reason they wear combat boots. To avoid being spoken to, I kept the t-shirt wrapped around my head and face. I wore the goggles that Donnie took from Virgil. They were brand new. My purview, the color rose. I drew a few stairs, but with the heat and the smoke, I wasn't that out of place. In a way, my own way, I was invisible. Not like the homeless kids of the street, or the Richies on the hill, or my man and the invisible man. And not because of the scars on my face or the makeshift shemag covering them. I was invisible because that was the deal I made with what Dylan calls the commander-in-chief. Dylan. That was my man. That was my guy. Where are you now, my blue-eyed son? Original punk. He made his deal, held his end. A never-ending tour. A songman. A tin pan. A carnival of and for the people. A life and homage to those who came before. A gift given, a price paid. The oldest of tradition. He knew that no thing is for free, not even God. But we were different, he and I. There was a time, and that time is gone. My father was right. Had Dylan been born post-rock and roll renaissance and into the mire, into hardcore, punk rock, PMA, straight edge, and of the same piercing mind, would he have made the same deal? Would he have consigned the never-ending tour to people beating the shit out of each other to his music every night, year after year, drinking their beer, just for the pleasure of a roof over his head? No, nor would I. See, I had a moment, too, but there was no nobility, no artistic integrity, no economic vantage point. It was a coming to, and that is all. An awakening on a cold and dirty street in front of the Fillmore, whatever they call it now, Google Theater. There were other things, too, that offered further degradation. A pure window for the moment of clarity to arrive. I mean, 86 was pretty ugly for punk rock. There were no coffee table books or museum showings. Everyone was strung out or selling out, often both. But the long and short of it, her name was Brandy. The mustard seed for my transformation was murder. That's not what Rich called it. He called it sex. But it is what the judge called it. It was clear to me a decision had to be made. The chief knocked. I call it the Lord, not because I'm religious, but because I like the way it sounds, has feeling. And it offered me a glimpse, a window into a possible life. I could have sobriety, freedom from the filth, the addictions and the violence, a thing that even then I instinctively knew I could never do on my own, too far down the ladder, my chemistry, my science, too messed up, take one, take twenty. But I couldn't have this, a violent punk rock paycheck, a rock and roll dream. There was a time and that time was gone. Whatever sense of community and belonging I had found was over with, done, violent, ugly, mean, addicted, meat, bunch of fucking meat, all of it intertwined, an abasement of what was once inclusive, hollowed ground. There wouldn't be acceptance of any kind about gender neutral without punk rock. There really was a time, Lord, when we stood on our own, found our own, made our own. I had to let it go. Had to, or there would be more of this, it said. 
One might think, given the particulars, that it was an easy decision or an overreaction, a drug-induced synaptic misfire, a psychological phenomenon, a delusion. Over the years, when things got rough, I wondered the same. People talk about heroin being hard to kick. Heroin, 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 they say. And it is, don't get me wrong. But music, the ability to make people feel and move and take action, please. It's a drug like no other. But my moment was no chimera, no hallucination. I simply walked out the front doors of the Fillmore, saw Brandy, her pale, gartered, lifeless legs extending out of the Chinook. Saw Rich in the back seat of the cop car, his shaven head deformed, beaten and bloody, eyes the size of golf balls, our band name headlining the marquee. The kids, the cops, the swinging batons, the blood on my needled arms, the blisters on my fingers and lips. Donnie up against the wall next to the box office, fending some new breed of skinhead that felt the in-between was a conduit, a reversion to the mean of Nazi expressionism. I saw it all. And again, I heard my father's refrain. There was a time, and that time is gone. So yeah, I took the deal. I took the books to learning how to live sober in a world that clearly was not and is not sober. To things I had no idea of, to spirit. What was music about if not spirit, and not a pure connection to source, to Zen, to Buddhism, Hinduism, Alan fucking Watts? Did I take myself too seriously? If survival is serious, then yes, I did. But small talk never worked for me. Fuck small talk. Computers? No, man. I had to replace the music in my head, my Serbian genes, with something else. Something of equal or greater value. I needed to work, to build, to be outside looking in, to seek, to be new, to connect to this thing that I had no idea of. What else did it want? I had to find it. I was of the street, but I was not the street. I was capable of more. And I had to be, or there would be more of this. So that was the deal. Invention, reinvention, anonymity, a free fall into the no thing, the vortex. And the Lord did its part, held its end. 22 years sober, a roof over my head, a semblance of life. I was doing all right, but I was restless, always searching, always seeking, asking too many questions until I had fallen into an, is this it? Questioning everything, malaise. I should have known better than to ask that kind of question. Never know what the response might be. Could be an exacto knife. Strange how violence follows. The very thing I am trying to get away from comes to me while taking a nap in between classes on the campus lawn. It was nice out. Late May, balmy and blue skies. School was almost out. No need for a hoodie. And then it came. Just like that. The great reality. The answer to my question. I put my arms up, but... I had no defense. It came on to me in savage waves, enveloped my being. And I have to admit, the aspiring MFA carved on more than just my face. She sliced right through my sophomoric understanding of life and enlightened me on my minuscule place in the bloody randomness of it all. I should have asked for the money. Do I contradict myself? Fuck you. I contradict myself, my way.
The first thing that strikes me about that chapter is that it sounds like such a nihilistic scene, the L.A. punk scene in the 2000s. Is that what it's like now? Uh, well, <laughs> I guess it depends uh, who you ask. That's the way that I see it. I'm like a writer. You know how we're like chameleons, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I never identify myself as a punk rocker per se. Uh, I never wore that badge, but I grew up in that era and, you know, real time and adopted it real time, but didn't adopt the uniform. And I've never been about violence. It's always just kind of freaked me out. Well, that's the second thing about that chapter is it hints at an association of violence with punk, and you get much more of that later. An example is I'd never heard of the FSU, and that shows up at the Punk's Not Dead Fest. Jimmy picks a fight with some of the FSU and gets his ass kicked, quite frankly. Yeah. Tell me about that group. I had to look that up. I'd, I'd never heard of it before. How do I say this? They're more symbolic of uh, skinheads, these punk gangs that I remember in the 80s. They'd find a mark, and then they'd just beat him to a bloody pulp. And sometimes it would be hospitals, and sometimes it would be death. Those guys, were Jesus. they would just show up and looking for someone. Now, did you witness any of that? Uh, yeah. I've, I've witnessed Oh, my the, God. I've wit- well, not necessarily death, but they'll bump up against you, and then they'll try to instigate it. And then back in the day when it was, everything was a lot more, you know, divided, meaning like if you had long hair, you're a mark, you know, and that was that kind of, that time, that, that mid eighties time when it was just from my vantage point, pretty ugly, pretty male dominated and violent. I had Pleasant Gaiman on the show in the first season, I think. And I wanted her to talk to me about the punk scene in the late 70s, early 80s. And that was one of the things she talked about is there was a shift between the very early 80s when it was all inclusive. And then it became this very misogynistic, kind of racist, homophobic thing, violent. And then it just continued from there. And a lot of people who had been in the scene, especially women, dropped out. That seems to be what you're talking about, that kind of era. Yeah, I mean, I think the novel tries to, it just, like, Jimmy has this vantage point of, like, he's been gone for 20 plus years and this thing that he was involved in, and he just, he sees it, you know, everything that he walked away from. So in one way, he's disgusted, and in another way, he's validated for his decision to walk away. I think it's interesting, you know, I, Pleasant has such a vantage point, you know, I can't really speak to that. But I do recall, from my understanding, is that some of those germ shows were pretty violent. So yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing comes out of a vacuum, I would say. And just for the sake of clarity, FSU stands for Friends Stand United. But it's commonly called, as you referenced in the novel, it's commonly called Fuck Shit Up. And <laughs> yeah, that's pretty right. much what they do. <laughs> I, I did not, I will tell you this, I did not know anything about, uh, I've only known it from, you know, like, fuck shit up. There was this hardcore band, I think in like Huntington Beach or something for a half a second. And as we do, I just watch. <laughs> as, a, as a writer, I, I, I see things, you know, I observe. But that was never my thing. I was not into hardcore, per se. I didn't ask you to read the chapter where the fight does break out, but that is pretty intense. So I can just imagine what a festival like that must have been like or must be like. Yeah, they can get out of control pretty quick. I mean, I can tell you that that is sort of loosely, loosely based. I had a, I wasn't there, but I had a very good friend who was beaten very, very badly by a guy very similar to the one I described. Not exactly the same. And so, yeah, that's just, it's disgusting. I'm, I'm just not into it. But in the same breath, I came out of an era where there was a lot of it.
Hi there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Look, listeners, if you're interested in hearing more about the L.A. punk scene in the early 80s, especially Pleasant Gaiman's perspective on that period, check out Season 1, Episode 4, featuring Janet Fitch's punk rock novel, Paint It Black. Pleasant and Nicole Panter, who is the former manager of The Germs, join me in the last couple of segments to share their unique and fascinating viewpoints on that era as active participants on the scene. I'll put a link in the show notes. And now, back to Gen X Core and his novel, California Roadkill. I don't think I've ever read a novel that treats homelessness, mental illness, and addiction as starkly and honestly and in such an unprejudiced manner as California Roadkill. I mean, starry-eyed film and music fans like me think of L.A. as a sort of mecca, a pop culture paradise, and you don't waste any time disabusing us of that fantasy. Case in point, after a member of the FSU beats up Jimmy during the Punk's Not Dead Fest, Jimmy stumbles along Wilshire Boulevard and encounters a homeless camp, and you write, quote, The punk circus now gone, the street returned to stasis, loud, active, a sigh of relief in the sunken eyes of its homeless inhabitants, an aimless yet normalized shuffle in their bare calloused feet. No gentrification here, Lord, none. Free market in full effect. The homeless were home in the most liberal and wealthy of states, end quote. And that's just one of many scenes involving descriptions of the homeless population in L.A. All right, Ginger, thank you. The number of homeless across the city of L.A. and county of Los Angeles has skyrocketed. KTLA's Eric Spillman is live in Venice with more on the alarming increase. Eric, good morning. Morning, Megan. Morning, Chris. These new numbers are not a surprise to anyone who lives here. More people are living on the street or in tents or in cars or in RVs or on the sidewalk uh, when you compare to last year, even though the government is spending billions of dollars to house them. Now, this new survey was done back in January by volunteers who went around for three days. So the book challenges readers to reconsider their preconceptions about marginalized people and their place in society and to think about how the world has changed in the last decade. Talk about the current homeless situation in L.A. And we sort of did that before, and I told you what I saw. But are there resources available? Do you see this getting even worse before it gets better? What's the scene like as you see it? Well, uh, for a second there, it looked like it was getting better. They cleaned up some big, some big encampments. I mean, downtown hasn't gotten better, that's for sure. But like parts of Hollywood did. But it was really unfortunate because I feel like it was just around the, the time of the mayor race. Mm-hmm. And then right after the victor was decided, things gradually kind of got back to normalized. There's not one day I, I don't walk on the street and have to look over my back and be careful. Oof. It's just, it's a fact of life. Every Angelino knows it. That's the way that it is. So I can't say that it's, it's changed. I think that there are no easy answers. Yeah. I don't have answers. I, I just know there'll probably be tough decisions. I've had family members on the streets. And suffering and so i try to like just view people from like that's someone's you know someone has a mom someone has a brother someone has a dad somewhere i've had friends who've told me after having gotten off the streets that they were not in their right mind they yeah. thought people were monsters chasing them and um that's got to be frightening sure I like that the novel addresses systemic factors contributing to homelessness and addiction. I mean, you do get into that, especially in the next part of the novel where Jimmy takes Donnie to rehab. And I don't want to say too much about that because I don't want to give too much away. But I will say that their former bandmate, Rich, who was in prison for murder and is a recovering addict himself, now operates that recovery center that Donnie goes to. Well, Jimmy's there, too, taking Donnie. And it's called A Return to Dover. You don't have to say too much if you don't want to, but tell me about the kind of facility that is. He runs essentially something like 
you know, the Malibu thing, the promises thing or whatever else they got out there. I think there's a, you know, like a lot of them. Which is not a 12 step program. No, 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 no. They're just rehabs, you know, like 60, whatever, 80 grand. I don't even know how much they are. Good God. Yeah. I knew this one guy is like a, it was farmer from the middle of the country. He'd been out there five times. Oh, wow. So it's a whole thing, you know? But there is an indigent component to it as well, which will be addressed. Yes, you have to read the whole book to find out what we're talking about, and it is well worth the read. Something else I wanted to talk to you about. You touch on the challenges faced by adjunct teachers in the novel, which I can appreciate. There's that line about Jimmy borrowing a bunch of money to get his GED, bachelor's, master's, PhD. And the only teaching gigs he could get are as an adjunct going from community college to community college. So consequently, he's living below the poverty line and has no job security. Furthermore, one of his creative writing students slashed his face with an X-Acto knife because he gave her story a C grade. So now he hasn't worked in over a year and has some scars on his face, which in, when you read that chapter, there was a mention of that. He says he should have given her an F, but he was trying to be nice. So here's what you write in the voice of the narrator, Jimmy, about that experience and the aftermath. Quote, what can I say? I fucked up, bit the apple, tried to play nice like the tenure professors, be liked by all the students, improve my myprofessor.com rating. That's what administrators look at when hiring for full-time gigs. They say they don't, but they do. Bad reviews lead to low enrollment. Low enrollment leads to lose your job, end quote. Lord, yes. <laughs> Anybody listening who doesn't know much about adjunct work, myprofessor.com, a bunch of us live and die by that. I'm lucky in that I've been at the university job I have for almost 24 years. Yeah, good for you. That's great. Yeah, I'm considered fixed-term faculty. I'm not tenured. I'm not tenure track. I have an annual contract, but I do have retirement. I do have good benefits. So I feel very fortunate in that respect. But so many people I know fit this description from your book. People going from community college to community college, not knowing if they're going to get another gig the next semester. It's a real problem in this country. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the last time I read when I was writing that portion, there was... I don't know, like 50% of the, the faculty was adjunct or more. So for the universities to continue to charge more tuition but pay less, I mean, I'm sure they have their reasons, but it, it seems like we've lost the point here. Oh, absolutely. I just stumbled across a 2020 report from the Hope Center for College Community and Justice that reveals about 38% of instructional staff are unable to meet their basic needs, including food and housing. And of course, a lot of adjuncts do have to sleep in their cars and rely on public assistance. I see that getting worse before or if it ever gets better. Agreed. Yeah. Well, when the sun goes down and the moon comes up Okay, let's lighten the mood a tad. I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade in his rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. You ready? <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's play the game. First category, neighborhoods mentioned in California Roadkill. Obviously, this is very much a California novel. The first part centers on Los Angeles. You mentioned several different neighborhoods and locations in L.A. in the book. Which one would a tourist like me be most likely to get mugged in? First one, the Vortex. 
So you write on page one, every vein, every freeway, one way or another touched the vortex and from it spread not only the illusion of choice, but perhaps more importantly, the promise of escape. So we have the vortex. We have Echo Park. And this is where Jimmy lived with his dad in a small apartment. Then we have Silver Lake. And then we have MacArthur Park, where the Punk's Not Dead Fest took place. It's also the turf of the Little Psychos gang. Which one of these locations in L.A. is somebody like me most likely to get mugged in? Uh, Probably MacArthur Park, because Echo Park and Silver Lake are just like a lot of rich kids living there. But like the Vortex is more like a a wasteland. There's no one there, you know, so you're probably not going to get mugged there. But you'd probably be more afraid, whereas you should probably be more afraid near MacArthur Park. <laughs> yeah. Okay. New category. Different subgenres of punk rock. Some of these were mentioned in California Roadkill, and a couple of them I'm just going to throw in. So the first one is early thrash. Next one is first wave hardcore. Then we have art punk. And then grindcore. Just choose one for whatever reason, something that you like, something that you'd want to listen to, something that you think really speaks to the novel more than anything else. Well, listen to would be art punk, but uh, speaks to the novel would probably be, yeah, first wave hardcore. What is steampunk? Someone mentions this as opposed to, quote, real punk on page 37. What is steampunk? (laughs) It's a good question. I don't even really know. Like, I I hear different things. (laughs) (laughs) I hear different things all the time. It's like, oh, it's more like an aesthetic. Okay. It's kind of born out of these bearded, tattooed, kind of like they were rockabilly. I don't know. It it feels like it's like everything else. It just sort of morphed into a bunch of different iterations. And then for half a minute, it became steampunk. You know, like you ever see like uh, some of the tattoo artists that have like the big mustachios with the the twirly twirls yeah, and they're all yeah. tatted back and they're like perfect hair. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting yeah, an idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. in their, you know, jeans and Pendletons. Nice. All right. New category, punk rock drummers. The character Donnie is a punk rock drummer. He was in Jimmy and Rich's band, The In-Between. And at the beginning, he plays a pickup gig with a group at the Punk's Not Dead Fest in MacArthur Park. But before that, he goes to Jimmy's apartment and tries to convince Jimmy to join him at the festival as his sort of coach to help keep him away from drugs. And at one point, Donnie plays the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again from their album Who's Next on Jimmy's turntable. So... Let's talk drummers, more specifically drummers with a punk rock sensibility. Which one is your favorite? Keith Moon, Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, Topper Heaton from The Clash, D.H. Pellegrove from The Dead Kennedys. Well, that's tough. So Donnie's very much modeled after the concept of D.H. because D.H. was a black drummer in a, in this like what ended up becoming like all this weird racist shit in punk rock. And so that always struck me as what a powerful drummer he was and person he was. And, but also the life experience that he must have had um, as a result of living in that reality. It was fat, you know, just sort of fascinates me, but I mean, Keith Moon. <laughs> I mean, come on. who got a shout out in the novel so i kind of thought you might go with him well yeah because donnie would be more like jimmy looks at him as sort of a a real artist and that's not to say the other drummers aren't artists they clearly are but i think 
in in Donnie's mind, he's having conversations with the greats. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy was a singer and guitarist, and he also wrote some of the songs for the band, The In-Between. Yeah, he's like the primary songwriter, correct. Let's go with punk rock singers then. Which of the following is your favorite punk rock singer? We got Johnny Rotten, Patti Smith, Exene Servinka, and you mentioned the germs earlier, Darby Crash, Alice Bag, or John Denny from the Weirdos. John Lydon, for sure. I like Johnny Rotten too. Love him. I do too. Last category, and this is just a fun one. Items sold by vendors at a punk rock festival. So on page 44, you mentioned some of the vendors lined together at the back of MacArthur Park at the Punk's Not Dead Fest and a few of the items they're hawking. (laughs) Yeah. Which of those items might be more likely to sell out first at a punk rock festival? Hemp beanies, backpacks, or stuffed animals? Ooh, that's tough. (laughs) Are we talking about today? Sure. Let's go with the backpacks. Really? I thought you'd say hemp beanies. Well, backpacks. like the... Okay. That, you're probably right. That was like... I, I, that whole scene was built. I went... I was in Ireland once at the... I think it was Tea in the Park or one of those big festivals. And it was rainy and muddy and it was just like hell. And there was these shanty vendors just like that. And that was... And these, <laughs> these guys... I'm like, oh my God. You know, <laughs> like I just bought something, beca- but I, when I got it, I was afraid to put it on. I think it was a beanie. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then when in doubt, go with the backpack. Uh, well, that's why I was thinking more like utilitarian, more functional, like, but maybe if you're like in Europe in the summer, you might go with the beanie. Fair enough. Well, Corey, this has been a blast. Before I let you go, What are you up to now that you want to tell listeners about? Are you working on any new writing projects? Yeah, yeah. I am working on Volume 2, California Roadkill. Oh, really? We have a sequel coming out. We do, yeah. And so that's been fleshed out. It's in third draft form, so working away. We have to keep me updated on how that's going. Yeah. I'm so grateful that we were able to spend the time together. It was just fun. Yeah. So where can folks go to find out more about you and buy a copy of California Roadkill? Well, I'm on social media, but you can you can go to my website, genxcore.com. My stuff's on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, lulu.com. So it's everywhere. I do want to give a shout out to my my awesome publisher, Mystic Boxing Commission, for really allowing me to write what I had to write and to give me the bandwidth and the artistic freedom to write what I wrote. I think it was really brave and uh, grateful to Mystic Boxing Commission for sure. Ron Youngle illustrated the book. You worked with him on it, didn't you? Yeah, Ron is my confidant through most of it. He guided the book all the way through. Dan Yerian runs Mystic Boxing Commission. Okay. And Dan, yeah, Dan's been very connected to the literary scene in Los Angeles for a long time, up in Santa Cruz and San Francisco as well. Before that, he's really connected with the Beyond Baroque folks uh, in Venice and a great poet on his own. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to read part two when it comes out. Just keep us all posted. Thank you. Thank you. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Thanks for tuning in, Lit Listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. 
Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.